1: I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature.
0: Yes. And
1: I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart?
0: Well, I had this question. Even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like... I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing.
1: And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture and yeah. people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches people take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature
0: yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course mm-hmm. But when you've mastered that, you really want to share it with other people, and people want to be shared with, right. and they will pay you money. So, if that's the way you want to go, that's why it ended up being life coach training. But it's actually wayfinder, which is
1: different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and, and steering your own course. So, if people are interested, you can Google wayfinder life coach training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. And this is Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. And today we have a very special episode, Marty. Oh, yay! Okay, so this person, I mean, we like her
0: a lot. Um, Yeah. But I doubt you have heard of her. She's she's one of those low-energy people who never achieves much
1: and Mm, uh,
0: mm. is really trying so hard to figure it out. And uh, once entered a state fair in every single event offered and was given a special ribbon called Most In Show. Because this person is the opposite of the one I've just described. This is the incredible, the unconquerable, I'm running out of adjectives, Liz Gilbert! Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Marty. Hi, Roe. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you guys. I love you so much. We all just, through the winters of COVID, we would just sort of, (laughs) Liz came over and would sit by the fireplace because she assured us, I grew up in the country, all the air gets sucked up the chimney. It's true. I can't infect you.
2: It's true. I thought it was just one of your clever ruses. Well, also, I had a mask on and also... (laughs) You were the only thing I missed during the pandemic about oh, the world being what? shut was coming over to your house. So I had to be mask myself and you come and sit, and sit by you.
0: You were wonderful. So then we'd all just end up cuddling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. That went. Yeah. That's what we did. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. We, we cuddled a lot because that's the natural way. And the nature culture, culture says you don't have your friends come over and cuddle with you. But we say that's our nature. We're cuddly. Yes, exactly. We are cuddly. Culture's wrong on that one. Mm -hmm. So today, we're going to ask Liz Gilbert what she's trying to figure out. And we'll talk about what the culture says about that. And then we will have a conclusion. So (laughs) what? (laughs) I love conclusions. Conclusion. (laughs) I'm in self-help mode, book writing mode. You have to tell everybody what's going to happen (laughs) on every page. No. Seriously, what is Liz Gilbert trying to figure out? Well, well I, first of all, thank
2: you
1: very much for inviting me to your house. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for inviting yourself to our podcast. Yes, that's
2: what I did. I said, you, you guys, can I come and play on your podcast? Because that's the other thing we do. We cuddle and we play. Yes. Um, and this is playtime. So, well, I, I want to talk about trying to figure out why culture is so incredibly hostile to the idea of single childless women. Mm-hmm. And um, and especially single childish women, childless women, oh. also childish. I right, am <laughs> not childish, I'm childlike. Okay. Yes. Let's just get that <laughs> right. 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 They're two different things. Um <laughs> especially hostile to women who are single and childless by choice. There's uh-huh. there's 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 pity and compassion oh. and great sorrow available yeah. to women who are childless and single. Um, alone, but uh, it, because they couldn't help it or wanted something right. else, but but to choose that as a path um, is is met by culture with hostility at the worst, like way past bewilderment, just just um, yeah, rage, blame, um, disgust, contempt, and oh and I'm trying to figure out why that is the case because I am single and child childish. I'm just going to keep saying it, childless <laughs> by choice and. It's so good. Um, it's so deeply good and enjoyable and mm-hmm. rich and full. And I also have created a life where I, my family, are my friends, and that's also something that culture does not approve of. Yeah. So th- um, that's what I'm here to discuss with you, beautiful human beings, today.
0: So I am curious. Like you've you've had these experiences of of people coming at you that way. Like, what's a specific time that it happened? Like.
2: Um, yeah. I was, okay, well, this one, this one is funny. Ha ha. It was at Ray's funeral. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, a relative of mine was an older female relative of mine was in the room with me and with a number of my friends who had come to support me. Rhea was my partner, who was your friend also, who died mm-hmm. several years ago. And right before the funeral, they were all gathered together. And, and this older female relative of mine was with us. And she said something about how. She had so admired um, that Barbara Bush. <laughs> that's already a sentence that's like you don't hear. A lot. She had so admired that Barbara Bush had, and her uh, would, was given the commencement speech at Vassar once, and she said, mm. "All of this is wonderful that you're all getting this education, but you'll find in life that there is nothing more important or precious to you than having a family." Mm. And she got some kickback from that, even even thirty years ago or mm. however long it was that she did it. And and I said, "Well, I can see why people might have been." you know, those young hardworking scholars around right. <laughs> might have been like, huh, um, to that, you know, and uh and and this relative of mine said, Well, it's true. There's um a life without children is is pointless. And I looked wow. around and I was with four of my friends. None of us had children. <laughs> oh my god. And I god. thought and I said, Well, I guess our lives are pointless, you guys. And I just oh I just started laughing because I was looking at these incredible women in my life and their lives were so extraordinary. And they, and they were so wonder, I mean, it's not even like they were all like super famous, heavily accomplished, whatever. They were just extraordinary people, you know, whose lives were so full and so rich. And I thought, man, this just doesn't go away. This, this really thick, deep idea, um, that, that that's, that there's no other reason to live um, as a woman. And I bought into that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I bought into that as a young person. And I went out and got myself married as fast as I could and mm-hmm. went on the track to have kids. But then something in my body and my being just refused to allow it. And um, and I went into a full mental, physical, and psychological breakdown. Those of you who have read it, Pray Love... That or seen that. the movie, know what happened next, um, because I simply couldn't do it. It's like th- there was almost like I was wired in a way that I could not do it, even yeah. though the culture had told me to do it. Oh, thank God! I couldn't do it, and I thought there was something so wrong with me because yeah. I kept having nervous breakdowns instead of having children. And, um, <laughs> and then when I gave that up, my life got better and better and better. And anyway, so that's what that's what we're here to discuss. That is so.
1: Liz, what do you think is going on if the culture's saying your life is pointless yeah. if you don't have children yeah. or have a family in that conventional sense? Yeah, what's what's behind that? Like, what's what's going on? Because we know that the culture's kind of always got an agenda. Yeah, yeah. So, w- what's happening behind the scenes when women are being told that? So glad you asked. <laughs>
2: um, I actually wrote about this a lot in my book, Committed, because I was looking into that exact question. So. Before I answer that, I have to tell you that the culture there are cases where you can say like well, that's opinion and cultures have opinions, and people have opinions here's the thing: the culture is actually wrong on this mm. and and all sociological studies there's something that's called the marriage benefit imbalance puzzle, mm. which I'm sure you've heard about maria, yes. but it's bewildered um I'm just plugging the podcast when I say bewildered i 'm going to use that word as much as I can uh-huh. um It has bewildered sociologists forever because there is this incredible, um, drop that happens in the quality of a woman's life when she gets married. Mm-hmm. And it is across every single aspect of her life. Her financial life will plummet. Her physical health plummets. She will on average gain 10 pounds within a few years. Her, her, her life expectancy goes down. Uh, her chances of getting murdered skyrocket. Wow. Um, her chances of committing suicide skyrocket. Depression rises. Anxiety rises and And if you the more children you add to that, the worse it gets Ugh. right so literally, in every single measurement that you can use to measure the quality of a human being's life, statistically, there is not one single place in which it shows that married women do better than single women.
1: Like married so, hetero women. Yeah. Married
2: hetero women. And I mm. don't know the studies on, and I've, oh, and I asked that and committed to, cause I was like, I wonder what happens when two, it probably just becomes really qua. but I also, whatever, <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. It's not my world. <laughs> so first of all, I just want to say it's, it's the culture's telling you a story that is simply, it's not just an opinion. It's simply not true. You will take ten years off your life expectancy immediately as a heterosexual woman by getting married, just right off the bat. You know, it's it's crazy. So there's something happening. What is happening? You know, what's being sold? Yeah, Marty wants. To I know
0: these studies. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the same, but. What the bit you left out is that after marriage, a man hetero his quality of Sky life goes
2: way, way up skyrockets every single thing that happens to a woman is given to a man, so she loses ten years of of her life expectancy he gains her health goes down, his health goes yep. up, her rates of addiction, alcoholism, suicide, and murder possibility go down his. He sores. Her work, her career tanks his sores. Yep. There's no better thing a man can do than hitch himself to a woman. Yep. So, And there's no worse thing a woman can do statistically than put it. And this is what makes me so crazy about literally every single romantic story we're told is the opposite of that. It's like, it makes me mental when I watch rom-coms and the whole theme of it is a man running away from getting trapped into a marriage and a woman running toward this thing that she wants so much when in fact it should be the opposite. The woman should be running, screaming away and the man should be running toward her begging to make his life a million times better because that's what's actually going to happen. Oh, my gosh. You know, statistically, obviously, there are anomalies within this, but this is like this is shown in study after study, and it hasn't changed over no. the decades. No. So, so first of all, there's, there's this incredible central lie, right? So who benefits from this lie? Aha! Well, it could be like the patriarchy right like it could be the men whose lives get so much better when a woman is attached to them you mm-hmm. know um and it's also culturally cultures okay this is especially in a culture like an american culture which is all about individualism where the culture and the society does not take care of its citizens mm-hmm. and it doesn't want to it doesn't want to spend money on that it wants to spend money on the military right so it wants the citizens to take care of themselves right because mm-hmm. that's what benefits the capitalist market is like, if everybody takes care of themselves, we don't have to pay for healthcare. We don't have to pay for education. And the best way to create building blocks of culture where the building blocks take care of themselves is to have a woman taking care of that block. Yeah. Right? So you bring a woman in, you create a family around her. She will make sure that those children get educated. She will make sure that those children get dentistry. She will make sure that that husband goes to his job. And if she does all of that, then the culture doesn't have to do it right mm, so wow. what happens is that our entire capitalist cultural huge success yes. american dream is built upon those women doing that individually one household at a yep. time which is why they die younger which is yep. why they commit suicide which is why they stru- struggle with depression and anxiety and and can't get through the day because they're holding up something that in a healthy culture would be shared
0: yeah mm. i did my phd dissertation on this how the, the basically all Men Are Created Equal was written by a white property owning male who never thought to call, include women, people of color, anybody except himself, in the, and those men who matched him, that they were all equal. But all the work of the society had to be, done. oh, I think we better enslave about mm, millions of people and drag them back here to do the actual work. Then when it was illegal to force a person of color to do what, everything you wanted for free, Women were the only ones left to do the work of households, the care, the feeding, the loving, the healing of every little kid, every old person. Women took that all upon themselves. And then at a key point, feminism came out and said, yeah, you can do this and also do a job that was created for a, a, single, for a married man who has a full-time free domestic support staff. And so now women were trying to do it both. This was in the 80s when I was trying to do everything. And somebody went to Gloria Steinem and said, This is not workable. I have to do everything that a huge household of servants would once have done and do the the job my husband is doing and somehow make all this work. Why didn't you tell us it would be this way? And Gloria Steinem looked at her and said, We didn't know. Because the culture makes it so mind-blind. Okay, this favorite stump. Every person going into freshman year at Harvard drink um, was (laughs) required to read or asked to read Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And it's about this guy who goes to this pond and he just communes with nature for a whole year to show that nature takes care of you and everything is fine. And it's this classic of the isolated woodsman out there. He does not mention that every day his mother and sisters brought clean laundry and food, cleaned the house, took away his dirty laundry and dirty dishes, and then came back the next day. What? You just assume that's going to happen, right? Like, that's not a a human doing that. It's a woman. That's what they do. It's like the sun rising. They just come wash your clothes. (laughs) Sorry if I sound a little bitter. Well spotted. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So... Yeah. And I was on that track in my first marriage. I I mean, mean, I I was supporting us and I was working really hard and I was putting a meal in front of that man every single night and picking up his underwear. And I was enraged. And I was like, what am I? And I was about to have a kid and we bought a house with a nursery in it. Like I had, I was on that track. Wow. But what it took for me to get off that track was to almost commit suicide and have to be hospitalized. Like I was in so much... I mean, that's the lowest I've ever been in my life. It's the most psychological despair that I was ever in. The despair was what's wrong with me? Yeah. That I am not fulfilled and satisfied by this model. Mm -hmm. I am a terrible person. I am a selfish person. I am a broken person. (sighs) And it never occurred to me to be like, what's wrong with culture Mm -hmm. that this is what I was taught is the thing when it's horrible.
0: And you know what? That same so, had her hand up too. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I have a comment. Mr. Rowe. Roy. Roy's
2: got her hand up.
0: <laughs> Roy in the
1: back row. <laughs> the back row <laughs> it's with it's the eat. cool kids. <laughs> we'll be right back with more bewildered. I have a favor to ask. You might not know this but ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears. All the bits that you could have a podcast in front of, that's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favourite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And um, a review would be also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So, thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Mwah. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Ah!
0: By coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the
1: people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about
0: the change cycle at com slash change.
1: On the podcast, we 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 kind of try to point towards or figure out, figure it out, where what the culture's doing because it's often quite subtle and that its effect on us is often quite subtle but when we talk about like how do you go from the consensus which was sending you down that path right mm-hmm. to coming to your own coming to your senses you didn't have a choice like why do you think your system was like absolutely not because i'm sure that there's so many women listening to this who are like I wish I'd had as big a red flag going into it because now it's 30 years later and I went all the way down that path. I think
2: that I am very lucky to have a very low tolerance for pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm not kidding about that. I think the more you can tolerate pain – the longer you can stay in a system that is painful. Yeah, that's my And um, Yeah, I mean, you know, and and the women in my, the ancestral women in my family have limitless tolerance for pain. Hmm. Um, They can take anything, Hmm. they can absorb anything, they can come over any disappointment, they can be neglected, they can be so neglected and find a way to still wake up the next morning and do it again, they can be so maltreated Mm. and still find a way my saving i've never thought of this before but my saving grace was that i am oversensitive mm. um and so i'm a little bit of a canary in the coal mine right mm. and now the thing that i've realized at at, at in a couple of days i'll be 53 but now the wonderful thing i've realized is that the second i feel like oh no this is not this is awful like this is a navigational system yes um that i now really am grateful that i have I get out of things really quickly now. You know, hmm. like I get out of relationships with people really quickly. I back away from things really quickly that don't feel right to me. So what was happening when I was 30, um, when I had my 30-year crisis, my 30 crisis, because I was supposed to, I'd promised my husband that I would we'd have kids when I was 30. And I, hmm. instead, I was starving myself to death, throwing up anything I tried to eat, Every part of my body broke down. I had carpal tunnel syndrome. My knees were—I mean, I was having physiological yeah. just meltdown. Like I was turning into a crazy woman. I—I I called myself Medea, hmm. which is ironic because what does Medea do? Kill her kids. Anyway, yep. <laughs> um, I but I was like literally pacing the halls of this beautiful suburban house all night, freaking out like a caged animal, right? And I didn't want to be. I took as many antidepressants and anti-anxieties as I could to make that stop. Mm. But my natural sensitivity was so huge because I'm super sensitive that I was going to die if I stayed, right? And something Glennon Doyle said to me the first time we ever met was, I wonder why a woman has to almost die before she'll let herself change her life. Wow. You know, um, I'm not like that anymore. I make changes very quickly without having to nearly die. Um, But I also... I I was this weird combination of this highly sensitive, and I was an artist, you know? So my work was creativity and like my life was destroying me, you know? Um, So my sensitivity goes into my creativity and it works, but it went into my household and I'm like, what's going on? This is a nightmare, you know? Um, But um, yeah, so I think that I was lucky that I'm overly sensitive because I think if I were tougher and stronger and I could just stuff it and stuff it and mask it and muffle it and you know, do whatever I had to do to get through it, I would have, I would have done what so many people do, which is just, I got a letter once, the weirdest hate mail ever Mm. after Eat, Pray, Love came out. And the first line was, bitch, you don't think I hate my marriage? You know, and it was this letter attacking me for leaving. Like, I hate every minute of my marriage. I hate being a mother. I hate all this shit. But you don't see me running away to Italy. And I was like, well, good for you.
0: You found, you found a way to stay. I couldn't. Mm. yeah Mm. Yeah, I'm the same way I was yeah I I went deeper into it than you did um but when I was trying to be a good Mormon wife you want you want some oppression (laughs) I always say that the only thing the Mormons ask from their women is that 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 they breed well in captivity so I was going down that path and my whole body fell apart and I was like and I had three kids and I was like I could not move my hands I couldn't like I couldn't I, type. Yeah, I couldn't either. I was either. a writer and I couldn't like, and, and I had doctors telling me you need wrist
2: surgery, you need knee surgery, you've got an intestinal issue, you've got Ugh. like all of this stuff, but it was actually just a full body, every atom of my being in rebellion saying, wow. we will kill you before we let you do this thing. God. And I and I I actually, I'm a very spiritual person I actually think that that was- I think that the God of my understanding will do whatever it has to do to me to get mm-hmm. me back on the right path that I'm supposed to be on, and it's like yeah. I'm gonna. I don't know how else to get your attention, exactly, to tell you not this, not this, not this. Yeah. But I was also an incre- I'm a. I'm a really cooperative. I like to make everybody happy. I'm a cooperative, pleasing, sweet person. So I felt so incredible. My my obedience was. I mean, my obedience was: look, I I got married at 24, and I worked hard, and I bought a house, and I have a husband. I'm going to have a kid, and the disobedience that I felt Whoa. by breaking that was where my
0: depression came from. Well, I think you know it's interesting because, uh, because, like, Eat, Pray, Love was such a phenomenon. Like, the Bible hasn't sold as many copies as Eat, Pray, Love, and and then you've talked about how people who swear Eat, Pray, Love changed my life. They they didn't read committed. They, and I think it's because women have, been got, have gotten to this level of, or had gotten to this level of suppression. It's like the feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, um, women have been systematically disadvantaged in the polity, the legal, legal system, and uh, what was the other one? Money. Money, law. Politics, that was it. And she said, My way of my mission in life is to, and I thought she would say, ease the burden, but she didn't. She said, My mission is to deepen this disappointment in the hearts of women until they will suffer it no longer. Wow. Yeah. And so that's where you got. And I really think, I mean, tell me where I'm wrong here, but the fact that that book hit so hard and had so much influence. Is precisely because you were expressing what it's like to experience that your soul rebelling against the whole archetype of what you were supposed to be as a woman. I mean, I think that's Eat, Pray, Love may just be, you know, the way you figured it out, and it helped a ton of other women do do it as well. And that's because that's what you did on the bathroom floor. If you haven't read Eat, Pray, Love
1: two of you. Um, there's a copy in your house. (laughs) There's a copy in your house. Yes.
0: All your friends have it. Just borrow it for the night, whatever. But, uh, when, when Eat, Pray, Love came out, there was so much of the problem that has no name. And there was, it was you coming to your nature on that bathroom floor. The culture was pressing in on you from everywhere and you found your true nature at the center and it would not it would not. You, dis- you deepened your disappointment until you will suffer it no longer. And I think all 13 million people got that book and were trying to read their way out of the cultural trap that is marriage. And I think probably men as well as women, probably more women, but men as well. It's not a pretty picture for anybody. The man's going to some hideous office with a noose around his neck with nothing to do but try to make money. That's not really a a life. So how do you, like, as of now, you said you back away quicker, you, um, stay in touch with your nature much more closely. Like for the people out there who are going, oh my God, the culture is pressing in on me. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't like it either. And I don't want to get to the point where I kill myself. I want to start taking steps here. Sorry, the self-help author. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, like, is there a method? Did you, you eat, pre love was this huge cataclysmic thing. And then you had to go around the world to find yourself. And now like what, during the pandemic, for example, you had to do it alone in a room. Mm-hmm. That's easier. <laughs> There's still pressure though. There's still pressure, like online pressure yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So how do do we help people go from that kind of consensus to their senses? Like, What what is your methodology for staying in touch with the part that said, I will not? I have to feel it physically.
2: There's no other way for me Um, because my mind has been so distorted um, by trauma and culture that I don't, my mind is, is, is really not to be trusted a lot of times. (laughs) You know, I've, it's in the groundwater. I've drunk so many messages. It was in the mother's milk. It was in the uterine fluids. It's like, it's all, all of it. And so so I have to feel what I physically feel like. And mm-hmm. you've taught me a lot about this, Marty, and you talk a lot about this. And um, I've been given uh, this navigational system, which mm-hmm. is this actual physical body. Yeah. Um, and and I find it so interesting that when I was going through that depression and anxiety, because I was like, I don't want to be this person who blows up. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be the person who blew up culture. I wanted to be approved of and yeah. happy and loved. Um so I go to a doctor and the doctor would give me medication that would make me not be able to feel my body, right? Oh. Not be able to feel like anti-anxiety medication will tamp that down so yep. you can't feel it. Yeah. Right? And that would make me be able to stay in the, in the block, you know, that was wow. so oppressive. And so... I no one go off your meds because of what she just don't know. <laughs> no, don't no. I have I I have great respect for it, and there were times yeah. when I needed it. But I will also say this: I used to be on a lot of medication, and I'm not on any anymore. So oh. I just want to lay that out there. Yeah, like and and again, don't don't do anything hasty. But I I don't even take an Advil PM to go to sleep anymore. Wow. Like that's it's really. Because I'm navigating my life based on what it physically feels like. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I meet people who make me feel physically uncomfortable, I do not.
0: How does it have come into your body? What is the sense of not comfortable that some people give It lives
2: for me um, right below my sternum. Mm -hmm. um, And it's like right behind my sternum. There's almost a line from, there's actually, there's different feelings that I can feel, but, but the. But, and I also feel it. Um, my hands start to shake. Huh. Um, and, but I grew up, my hands shook all the time because I had a lot of anxiety in the family household. There was a lot of, you know, was a lot of tension. So I was used to walking around with shaky hands as a child.
0: Just, just for one moment, let's just. yeah. You had so much anxiety as a child that you were more used to your hands shaking than not shaking. Totally.
2: My hands wow. shook my entire childhood. My stomach hurt my entire childhood. That wow. was the baseline. That was normal you know like it was a high pressure high intensity household mm-hmm. in a high pressure high intensity culture wow. so it just feels um yeah i i won't i won't st- I'll discontinue and i'm really i've gotten so much more honest yeah. you know i've 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 aborted things with people where i've just said i have no intellectual defense for this i had a conversation with somebody recently who wanted to work with me and um And then I felt like, no, this is not, like my body didn't feel right around this person. And I said, I have no intellectual defense for what I'm about to tell you, but my intuition is telling me that this is not going to work. And I I have a long history of showing that when I override my intuition, it's going to be a disaster. Mm. It's going to be a disaster for me, for you. So I'm just going to discontinue this now. And I can't even tell you why beyond that. I love that. um, Yeah. So when I... I trust that I trust the body response now. Um, and and I went to a doctor. I was going through premenopause, and I went to a doctor who put me on a whole bunch of medication. And he was and and after a month, I was like, "This isn't it." You know, like so part of it is trying stuff. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you know, I tr- I put my body into a situation, and I see is this the situation? And after a little while or a long while, my body's like, "Nope," <laughs> and then I take it back out. Of the situation, and I did the same thing to him. I said, "Look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. I have nothing to base this on other than that I have intuition. But I guide my life by intuition, and this doesn't feel right. So I'm not going to continue this
0: path. So, um,
2: um, I'll find something else. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like it's interesting because I've, when working with clients, I found that everybody has their own compass needle. You know, the way it shows up, and yours shows up in your solar plexus is probably coming from the gut. Um. How do you feel it, Ro? Cuz I think we all have this like there's a warning that comes into the body when we're not in a
1: safe space or with mm. a safe person. Yeah. Mine's always anxiety, similar to Liz. It's always anxiety and I'm I'm also very hypersensitive and I didn't somehow I didn't like one of the things we come up against when we talk about this stuff is I didn't get as much culture in my mother's milk as a lot of people had, and that was such a blessing for me because I've been saying no to things cause I, it made me feel weird for a long time. Yeah. Um, and there are advantages and advantages and disadvantages yeah. to that for sure. But yeah, I go into a very physical state of anxiety that is not anything to do with my brain. It doesn't, it doesn't feel as though it's anything to do mm-hmm. with my brain. It's very high discomfort. And it's been a lot – I've had to do a lot of um, forensic mm-hmm. sort of analysis after the after the event of going, oh, because I wasn't meant to do that. Yeah. yeah. Something oh, was trying why. to
2: stop you yeah. from yeah. doing yeah. something like – and they're throwing everything at you to try to stop you from doing yeah. something that's not
1: good right. for you. Right. For but you. The thing, that's right. Exactly. For, for me. But, Liz, the thing that I always come back around to is – then there's that moment and you say that you're now really good at doing it quickly but when you're not, you know, gaunt and suicidal and your body's not falling apart because you're listening, there's something that you don't get and and that's the the my body's falling apart, I can't and so there's this courage. Mm. I feel like that we all have to kind of, Find when we want to go back out of that empty room yep. and say, Okay, culture, I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to say it's because of my intuition, which the culture will laugh at because intuition and capitalism don't know how to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And so, where do you find the courage and how do you do that in a practical way the saying and the getting the courage to say no? Oh, what a good question,
2: really. So I also just want to share what my somatic opposite of the no feels mm-hmm. like. What yes feels like to me is a belly full of warm vanilla pudding. <laughs> and I actually have come to call it the vanilla pudding warmth of mm-hmm. serenity, calm, and peace. When I'm where I'm supposed to be with the people that I'm supposed to be with, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and by supposed to, I don't mean any, I, I mean my my own Original software program mm-hmm. <laughs> that that the universe gave to me. When it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, it feels like I've I have a belly full of warm vanilla pudding. It's, Man, it feels just, like melted chocolate. It's yeah. It's it's oxy. I, that's what oxytocin feels like. I guess. Yeah. It's just um. It's just yummy. Mm, mm, this feels yummy. And the more I get of the warm vanilla pudding in my belly, the less I'm willing to give it up. Hmm. Um. So when I'm when I say no to things now, what I'm saying no to. I don't, I think of it as saying yes to warm vanilla pudding. Hmm. Um, So I have to, if I'm going to have more warm vanilla pudding, I have to say no to this thing. Um, And I'll give you some examples. So when the pandemic hit and we went into, um, into lockdown, I, I was living in warm vanilla pudding. Hmm. I, I was like, I am, and I, I recognize that I I don't want to be insensitive to the incredible pain and harm and death that people went through with the pandemic, but in my case, being Shut into a house, having everything in your life canceled. I mean, I had 18 months of business stuff canceled in one day, just wiped off the calendar, and and the world was like, "You have to stay home now by yourself." My whole world became vanilla, warm vanilla pudding to an extent that I had never before imagined, because I had never stopped that much, Mm -hmm. and I had never realized how yummy stopping felt, Mm -hmm. and how delicious my routines became when it was just me alone in a house living with this great roommate, myself, who <laughs> we have the same hobbies, we're into the same stuff. Like, I love getting up early, so does she. I, I like taking a bath and eating popcorn in the bathtub and watching the Great British Baking Show, so does she. Like, just finding these little hobbies, and it's, I didn't want
0: to lose any of it's it. It's the miracle of finding the perfect person to be with that everybody's trying to solve.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's like By- Byron Katie always says, the, you're the one you've always been waiting for, the love of your life is yourself. So what happened was when the world opened again, all these things started being reintroduced, right? Like suddenly social life came back, professional life came back, and I weighed each one and thought, do I want to reintroduce it? Hmm. Um, Because I had a really yummy vanilla pudding vibe going there for a while. Now, do I want to return to what I was doing before, which was a lot of stuff that I didn't consciously even wonder, do I want to do this? Do I like doing this? Do I like these people? Do I like these friends? And I had a couple friends... I had a couple of friends who were very several, um, who are who I discovered when I came out of my warm vanilla pudding solitude. I experienced their energy to be very pushy. Hmm. Um, that they were they were like missiles. They were sending texts all the time, they were sending invites all the time. And I tried a couple sort of subtle, like, hey, you know, I'm working on a book and I need some space. And there's um I recently read that you can do with people something called the no test which is that when you make a new acquaintance or you have a new relationship to try out a no on them and see how it goes. Oh, cool. And if they react violently or or self-pityingly or um, or you know pushingly against that no, hmm. that's a relationship you're going to want to discontinue because it's not going to get any better, wow. right? So I did some <gasps> no testing on some people where I was like, hey, I'm really kind of in my zone right now and I'm not doing anything. And when the text came the next week, well, how about next week? Can we do this? Can we do that? I finally realized, wow, I have to, I have to ask some people to leave my life. Wow. And um and I did. Um, I mean, if you'd shown me this video <laughs> or audio as a 30-year-old and said, you will someday become a person who contacts somebody who they have been a friend with for a long time and says, Hey, listen, I wanna let you know that I'm shutting my life down a lot
1: mm. because
2: I've discovered that I really mostly just love being alone and I want more of that. And so I'm going to be, I've really reduced my social circle to about six people. Hmm. And I can, I see that you keep coming in and asking for more contact. And I don't want to, I don't want to ghost you. And I don't want to be constantly saying no to you. I just want to let you know that I think I really just, I'm going to ask that you step back and let me just live my quiet life now. And I did that a bunch of times after, after the pandemic. And, and, and I did it as with as much kindness as I could, but they weren't stopping coming at me Yeah, and I had to stop it or else I was going to lose my vanilla pudding.
0: And it's really interesting that the technologies that we now enjoy were helping people come at you. Yeah. <clears throat> I just read this book by Katherine May, who self-diagnosed at, I think, 38 on the autism spectrum. and. She's a brilliant writer and she talks about how she learned to mask her extreme sensitivity and her, And she would have these things called whiteouts where she just couldn't cope with all the data coming into her brain. She didn't know she was on the spectrum. She didn't know that till much later. But one of the things she said that struck me as so, why didn't I think of that, was that she said, if I had been born 150 years ago, it wouldn't have been a great t- time to be a woman, but there would not be flashing lights everywhere. There would not be friendships with 200 people. There would not be, uh, you know, jet lag. There would Like she said, all the things that trigger me would not have existed 150 years ago. There wouldn't have been that many people. There wouldn't have been the ability for that, them to get in touch with you. And it's kind of like the pandemic pulled back the culture, which is pulling back the patriarchy, which I think we have agreed is the root of the problem. Not you, guys we love you but the patriarchy which is going to kill you too so it wants you to be cannon fodder so yeah i mean like can you just decide not to come back fully into that flashing lights culture that's what
2: i've done and i got off social media too which i went through which was i felt scared and disobedient when i did that too mm-hmm. i was like who do you think you are like this is the most important communication of the age right. but it didn't make me feel good i was real there. i was really was like, wow, there's nothing for me here. Mm. This makes me feel sick. Mm. I think it makes everybody feel sick actually, but like, it makes me feel sick and I I have to go now. I have to get a divorce from social media, (laughs) even though it was the same feelings I had when I got divorced from my first husband, which was like, are you allowed to? Don't you have to, didn't you commit? You've got, you know, all these followers. Don't you have to? And it was like, I really question now any voice that I have internalized that tells me, You have to Mm. anything, you know, like I really pause and I'm like, do I, you know, do I really because my God doesn't tell me that Mm. (laughs) my God has never told me anything that begins with you have to, Mm. um, I'm more aligned these days with you get to, Yeah, you get to get off social media if you want to, you get to. You get to ask boundary pushers to step back. You get to spend time alone if that's what feels yummy to you.
0: I once knew a horse whisperer who said um, he wanted to take out of his life the phrase, you must or I will hurt you. And uh. I, I just read this brilliant book called The Dawn of Everything by two Davids. I don't remember their last names. <laughs> two David people wrote it together. And it's, they looked at anthropology and archaeology to see why the world is so effed up right now. And they did, it's a 700 page book. It's a vast trove of research. And what they found out was that everything started to go wrong. Culture started taking over other people, a certain specific culture. They go back to Rome. And what they say is this was the first time somebody could say, um, I am, I love you as your father and I will hurt you. Mm -hmm. The other tribes and things they looked at, they might hurt people. And they had kids, you know, but they never hurt their kids ever. Like people from Native American communities would talk to anthropologists and say, we never hit or or yelled at a child before you people came. Mm. And now it's like a toxin that spreads through the whole thing so that you must or I will hurt you. Like do a deep dive if you feel weird around anything or anybody and see if there's a trace of I must or it will hurt me and it loves me. You know, like all your followers on Facebook who would get enraged when you disappeared. That's saying, no, you must or we will attack you. Mm -hmm. And if it has that energy to it, that is, they weren't talking about feminism. They were talking about why we're about to crash and burn like the fall of Rome. Rome fell because of that. And now we've got it going again. Wow. Like we had a president who said a lot of you must or I will hurt you while he was in office he he's just the loudest
2: vocalization of the, sure. what this culture has always been yeah yeah um, is just its ultimate metastasis metastasization. I can't show you that.
0: <laughs> we were thinking of doing an entire <laughs> podcast with our tongues stuck to our mouths. <laughs> so we thought that would be fun for everyone. We just said, that was the best baby talk. I will answer your question in two ways. First, it's a sociologist, any sexing is something
2: baby. I mean, <laughs> the question that I have for for everybody listening is, you know. Have you inherited a belief that you're not allowed to feel well
1: and mm. and I
2: you know i I really did inherit that belief that you're not allowed to feel well. Who do you think you are and you're allowed to feel good, and there are lots of things that this culture provides that'll make you feel good mm-hmm. right like lots of intoxicants, lots of sedatives, lots of distractions, lots of things to consume that'll make you feel good. You'll get mm. that good, good hit, but that's not the same as feeling well mm-hmm. and there are days now where I don't necessarily feel good, but I feel well. Mm. I heard it explained like that you could be, there are times in my past where I felt really good, but I wasn't doing well because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I was consuming a lot of things that made me feel good, but I was not at my essence doing well, mm. you know, and now I'm doing really well. And sometimes I don't feel good because I'm feeling my feelings and I feel yeah. sad or I feel lonely or I fa- feel angry and doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. but, but I'm doing really well. That's um,
0: largely because I can feel. Yeah. Feelings. It works better than wine. Think of that. <laughs> and I think Roe and I have been talking about this. We, I, I'm writing about self-regulation and how all of those are attempts to self-regulate. When you find somebody who's, you weren't an alcoholic or anything. Um, th- people don't get the idea that Liz is a drug addict or whatever. But I'm an addict. Yeah, you know, of I'm, situations of relationships. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an
2: addict. Yeah, for sure. And I've used more substances than I would would like to admit to regulate myself. Yeah, yeah.
0: But, but here's the thing: if you're out there doing this, and you don't see the way out, like don't kick out the person who is trying to regulate your entire inner system. If you if you talk to them as a separate part of yourself, you'll find out they're doing their absolute best. And they're trying to give you signals like, we're sick. We're sick. We don't like this, but we will regulate in this unhealthy way. If we have to, it's better than you dying. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking about self-regulating and like looking at all the things we use to regulate. I think you called it bottom line behaviors once. And then there are behaviors that are much better at coping. So, like... Rose said something the other day about just feeling that something that really helped stabilize things. Mm. No, couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Like carbohydrates or
1: something. Cause she's got insulin resistance. No, it was, I decided I wasn't going to have a glass of wine in the evening mm. anymore for a while because I could feel myself waiting for like knockoff and, and have a glass of wine and, it was, it was just, it was more like it was in my mind too much. I was sick of mm. like being like, you know, we have our wine time and i have a nice glass of wine. And then I was like, but if I don't, what's that going to be like? You know, and what was it? Have you because this I'm interested in t- hearing from both of you, when you
0: take away the familiar patterns that help you cope with living in the patriarchy, what I think will happen is you'll suffer enough that you will uh, tolerate the culture no more. So I love what you said, Liz, about how, you know, anti-anxiety medications, wine, whatever, is helping people regulate and feel okay
1: in a situation that is is toxic. Wait, what could you give some examples of what they might be if they're not actually substances? Like what are other ways that we regulate? Um, Because substances is easy. People will be able to go, oh yeah, for sure. Watching TV, mm -hmm. flipping through your phone. Oh
0: my gosh, the dopamine hit from flipping through your phone. We had- Such a drug. I had a game that had- amazing haptics it made my hand feel like the world was happening in it (laughs) and they knew they had something because when you go to renew your lives it's not five dollars it's like a hundred dollars and i was like i must (laughs) it's shiny it makes my hand feel the world and yeah that was my regulator for a while and then karen came and said "Um, about these charges i was like i'll delete it but it was
2: hard yeah, you know? you probably went through withdrawal.
0: Yeah, yeah. I did. And
2: so I went through withdrawal when I got off Instagram, like real withdrawal. Really? Like, what was that like? Uh, I, felt incredi- I felt incredibly uncomfortable, lonely, sad, scared, jacked up, agitated, oh. mostly fear. Um, for me, anything that I've ever put down, like, <gasps> which is the, the sort of recovery term for like, not using it anymore, has come with a, a period of withdrawal that has, for me, always felt like fear. Wow. Like, what will I do now? how will I be okay if I don't have this thing, you know? What did you Um, do
0: with that when you got off Instagram? I felt it. Mm.
2: (laughs) I felt it. And that's when I knew that for me, this had become a drug because I was going through the withdrawal of, I don't have my drug. I don't Mm -hmm. have my comfort. So I sat through it and, you know, I felt it. I sat there and I felt that the, the, the shakiness, the jerkiness of wanting to reach for this Mm. thing. I felt the sense of, I don't, I'm not connected anymore. I'm not relevant anymore. Um, you know, I don't know what's going on in the more in the world, nobody cares about me, I'll be forgotten, you know, all of these like deep psychological withdrawals. Mm. Uh, and then after a couple weeks, I mean, it was really difficult for the first few days, and then it settled, and then it settled. And then what 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 filled it was just, well, vanilla pudding. Like yeah. back came my initial, initial factory settings mm. of oh my God, the world is so beautiful. I'm going to go for a really long walk. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had been wanting, I'd been asking my higher power and my guides and my muses to send me an idea for a novel. I'd been asking for two years, for two years. I'd written in my journal almost every day, hey, anytime you guys have an idea for me for a novel, I would love one. And they would write back, when we've got an idea for you, you'll be notified. That was the conversation (laughs) that I had for two years. And I have enough trust of my creative process to believe I'll be notified, you know, like they'll let me know, and then I'll do it I'll do what they tell me two weeks after I got off on instagram, uh, got off Instagram, got off on Instagram was what I used to be doing oh, <laughs> got yeah. off Instagram, the idea came, wow, for the book that I'm now almost finished, isn't with. that you know, and it's like there was no room for it, right, so like I had to get rid of this thing so that I could create this spaciousness for this thing that I didn't even know what it
0: was that was going to come in. Wow. I love it when that happens. Um, this ha- it actually happened. Rose stopped drinking a glass of wine ever. It was not usually a big deal for her anyway, but immediately got the plot
1: of another novel and it's really, really good. It's, it's- something about like being available, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. you're not available for whatever guidance or or opportunity or whatever. And you guys
2: being present is incredibly uncomfortable. Mm. Like that's the thing. Like I love that Pema Chodron talks about this because she says people always think that meditation is going to make them calm and ultimately it will. Mm. Because she said essentially what happens is you've got this really, this mind that's like the surface of a lake with a big wind whipping across it. So it's got white caps and spray flowing and all this stuff and it's chaotic. And then you go into meditation and breath work and that water settles and then the surface of the lake is clear And people think that's going to make them calm, Mm. but it doesn't because now you can see what's at the bottom of the lake. You (laughs) can see the the shipwreck and the industrial waste and the garbage and like the corpses and everything that you've been not seeing, right? Right. So to actually have to be present, this is, I wrote about this in Eat, Pray, Love, how I was crawling out of my skin at the ashram sitting in meditation um, on and on. It's uncomfortable. If you're not used to feeling, it's uncomfortable to sit and feel. But- what happens if you can sit and feel and become an antenna that receives signals? And is that you start to receive signals suddenly? Yes. You've got inspiration. Suddenly, you've got ideas. Like everything, you're available. But it's not necessarily. This is why I say there are days I don't feel good. Yeah. But I always feel well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
2: when I don't feel good, you know, when I feel like sad or or alone or hurt or angry, I'm like. And, I'm, and sometimes I'm afraid I'll get carried away by it these days. I just think how incredible that I used to not be able to let myself feel this. I would have reached for, I mean, I had a subscription for Xanax for prescription. Subscription, it came subscription. every month. <laughs> <laughs> Time Life presents Xanax. I mean, I had Xanax and I always had an emergency Xanax in every pocketbook that I ever owned. Long, I mean, like, you know, back when I was standing on stage giving people life coaching advice, I had. Xanax in my pocket because the minute those feelings of discomfort would come up, I'd be like, that's got to stop. Yeah, You know, I had this last night, like last night I went through this wave of just, I don't know why, like things come in waves. I went through this wave of sorrow. I was thinking about Rhea and I was laying there in bed and my heart ached. You know, I could feel it. My physical heart was aching in grief. And I thought, wow, there was a time a couple of years ago where I would have just reached right over into This right into this very bedstand, and there would have been sleeping pills, and there would have been Xanax, and I would have created some sort of combo, and then I would have gone downstairs and made some buttered noodles, and I would have muffled and suffocated this feeling any way that I could because it's because it hurts. But instead, last night I just laid there and I felt this hurts, Hmm. you know. And I thought, what a rare bliss it is to be able to finally feel all the feelings that my culture has told me are not allowed. This is the hurt of pain. I knew I was going to see you guys today. I always feel nostalgic for Rhea when I see Mm. you because she loved you so much. I always feel so sad that she's not in the car with me Mm. coming to see you. And I was feeling that last night and I just felt it. You know, I had my hand on one hand on my heart and because I get it when I get a lot of grief, I get like a cramp in my shoulder Mm -hmm. because it's almost like a tiny little heart attack, right? Like you can, whenever people have heart attacks, they feel it down their arm. Mm -hmm. So I get a cramp in my shoulder and down my arm. So I had one hand on my heart and the other one just holding my shoulder Mm -hmm. and I just laid there and I just kept saying to that pain, I see you. Mm -hmm. I see you and I love you. I Mm -hmm. see you and I'm not going anywhere. I see you, I see you, I know, I see you. That hurts, doesn't it? I see you, I see you, I see you. And within forty five minutes or an hour, which might seem like a really long time to be in pain, but it settled, you know, because it just needed to be seen and loved. Yeah. And it didn't have to be muffled, it didn't have to be pilled away. And then I fell asleep and I got to come over here without a hangover from taking sleeping pills last night. Right. And feeling like, wow, it's amazing that I loved somebody that much that all these years later, just knowing that I'm going to drive to see her favorite people without her makes my heart hurt. Mm. It should. It yeah. should make my heart hurt. That is an accurate feeling. So that's what I'm learning about my hypersensitivity is that all of these feelings that i medicated and, and and when you were saying, what do you use if not drugs? I used people. Mm-hmm. That's why I was always in such intense relationships. I used people as sedatives. I used people as stimulants. Mm-hmm. You know, I used people as sedatives. and I used Raya yeah. as a sedative and a stimulant. She was a speedball, right? She <laughs> right. was heroin <laughs> and cocaine. Like, you know, I used people to regulate my nervous system. And now yeah. any day, what I consider sobriety for me is any day where I don't use anybody hmm. to change my internal life is a day where I'm emotionally sober. Wow. wow.
0: And that is like balancing on the head of a pin,
1: right? Yeah. It's wild. It's a wild experience to be alive. It's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you find, I don't know if you would agree with this, but one of the things that I find with that letting yourself feel it stuff that Marty introduced me to this idea of shards Mm. like where I remember when I don't know we hadn't been together long I was having a day of feeling it Mm -hmm. and and what Marty said to me which felt so true and continues to feel true for me is she said you you've been feeling this this whole time anyway Like you've, that is something that you have been carrying around every day and now it's coming out, which is really, you know, gets your attention and you really feel it, but it's a shard. And then when it comes out, it's one less shard that you're carrying around and there you'll be that much lighter. And, and this is just the time to, to let it work its way out. And I like, part of it is that, wow, it makes the feeling it so much easier on me and, it also, I I have, it has been my experience that after not distracting, not doping, not picking up the phone, not picking up the pills, that I do feel lighter after letting yeah. myself, you know. And I think about the Pema Chodron metaphor of the ocean is that I think the water gets a little bit clearer each time, mm. right? Because you've, you've pulled one of the corpses out. <laughs> yeah,
2: you're pulling out the, the 55-gallon drum filled with toxic waste, right? right. And like you're cleaning it up. But yeah, the first glimpse when you look down and for the first time you see it without distraction, it can be shocking. Yeah. It's joyful. Well, and
0: it's all part of you. So yeah. each shard is a represent- is a part of you. It's like something very traumatic happens. Part splits off and becomes the carrier for that pain. And then it may start drinking or something and you feel like you're not in control because it's not what you identify as self. It's a shard. And and what you just said so brilliantly, Liz, and I left out of, of what I told you is as the shard comes out, no matter how it hurts, it is something innocent that wants your love. Mm. It doesn't matter if, I mean, Rhea had years of addiction on heroin and cocaine. There wasn't a single time she took a hit of drugs that it wasn't an innocent person trying to take care of the whole world. Absolutely. So to look at each shard as it comes out and not even say, oh, I'm so glad you're gone, but I see you, I love you. You can come back if you like. And what happens when you do that practice is that all the little shards come back. You know, the corpses come out, the toxic waste comes out. But then there are like beautiful urns that are carried by mermaids around them. You go into the mystical, magical part of your brain. and Because all those shards are available to do whatever you want. And what they want to do is create. And we all create partly because... We're super sensitive. We're connect- Like, we couldn't tolerate life. It was making us super sick. And then we started loving our shards. And those shards said, how about we write a book? And some of them just said, I don't want to go
1: on this baby.
0: <laughs> and that's good, too. I just want to snuggle.
1: <laughs> yeah, should
0: we go cuddle a, a
1: bit? I think we should.
0: Yeah. So at the end, traditionally, do you feel complete?
2: I feel complete. Do you feel complete, Lizzie? I feel complete whenever I'm with you two. Oh,
0: for real. We didn't even get to. You're my vanilla pudding friends. Choosing (laughs) friend as family, um, which is another thing you've done, and it's a whole other topic we could get into on a different hour. Let's get it back. Now that we've got the
1: microphone. (laughs) All right.
0: So we we have to say stay wild in unison at the end. So one, two, three. Stay Stay wild. wild.
1: We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun please rate and review and stay wild.
0: You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need and the world needs wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to marthabeck.com, and you'll find your way.